Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. And we realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today and as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Now, would you open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Of course, that's where we've been for some time now. And we're all the way up at chapter 36. It's really the last chapter in a section dedicated to Yaakov, or Jacob, as you would say it in English. Genesis 36. And that's where we're going to be today, and we'll also put those verses up here for you in the video just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about temporary treasures. Well, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 35, and we were still looking at the life of Jacob, or Yaakov, Be'ivrit. Remember in Hebrew, Be'ivrit. Be'ivrit is Hebrew. Yaakov is how we say Jacob's name, Be'ivrit, or in Hebrew. But we call that message turning the page because it was now getting away from Jacob's life a little bit in order to get into the lives of Jacob's 12 sons. And after Genesis 36 that we're studying today, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Genesis in the fascinating story of Yosef. Joseph, and we're going to see how God saved Israel through that young man. What God did with one person's affliction saved an entire nation because of his affliction. And I'm sure many times he was wondering why he was in the situation and predicament that he was in, but oh boy, I can't wait to get into that message. We're going to start, and then we'll, that'll take us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. We've gone through a lot of chapters now, 36 of them. We'll quickly go through the life of Joseph starting next week, and then we're going to get to the end of Genesis, and that's going to be a lot of the Torah that you've gone through at that point. And you're going to know what the Torah says. You won't need other people to tell you what it says anymore. You're going to know personally what it says, and you're going to be able to understand it. Forget those people that tell you you can't understand it. Basically, they're trying to say that you're not smart enough. You're smart enough. You've been here all along, and we've been studying this. You know what it means. I remember in Hebrew, we have what we call the Pishat, which is the simple and obvious interpretation. It's simple so that anyone can understand it. It's obvious that you know what it means because it's obvious. So there you go. Pishat means a simple and obvious interpretation, and that is first and foremost true of all written Scripture. And so we're going to be going through and finishing up the book of Genesis. I can't wait to get into the life of Joseph. But first, we've got to go through one more life here. You know about Esau. Be'ivrit in Hebrew, his name is Esav. Esav with a V on the end, Esav. And so after we went through the life of Jacob, there's one more person that we gotta look at before we can go on to the leaders of the 12 tribes and the life of Joseph. We need to finish looking at the life of Yaakov's brother, Esav, Esau, as you would say it in English. And so that's what we're going to be in today and get ready because there's a lot of verses, but I'm going to read them very quickly to you. And then we're just going to talk about them in general instead of stopping a whole lot and talking about each and every verse because it is, after all, a list of names. It's a genealogy. It shows Esau's, or Esau's children and where they settled. And so we don't have a lot of explanation that's needed as we go through this list of names. But there are a couple of reasons why we're going through this chapter today. Because God had given a couple of promises regarding Esau. And is God wanting to show us now that he kept his word. He did what he said he was going to do. Any surprise there? He always does what he said he's going to do, right? But even God will now be dealing with Yaakov's sons and generations after them from now on. And he wants to let us know what happened to Yaakov's brother Esau. And while this chapter today may look just like a bunch of names, 
there's some messages in it that can help in our lives today. Now, first of all, God, earlier in the book of Genesis, remember how to say that? Be'ivrit ha-sefer bereshit. In the book, ha-sefer bereshit. Beginnings. In the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. God, earlier in the book of Genesis, made certain prophecies about Esau and his descendants. One of those prophecies was that even though Esau was the firstborn and older than Yaakov, his brother, and they were born at the same time, Esau was actually a minute or so earlier, so he was technically the firstborn. Esau would actually end up serving Yaakov. Now, I say that that's kind of radical because that's not the way it was in those days. The God had said that Yaakov would be stronger and more blessed in his life than his older brother Esau. And that same prophecy also said that Yaakov would be the leader of a nation. And it said that Esau would be the leader of another nation. The prophecy I'm talking about, you may know where it is. Genesis 25 verse 21 through 23. Let's take a look at it. I'm going to briefly hop over there and read it to you now. And here's what it says in verse 21 of chapter 25, the book of Genesis. It says, Now Yitzchak, Isaac, pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. She couldn't have kids. And the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together inside of her, and, and she said, If everything is okay, why am I like this? And so she went to ask of the Lord, What's going on here? And verse 23 says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now that prophecy was pretty odd because like I said, back then it was usually the older one that would have more importance in the family. The older son would usually get a greater inheritance from the father, a double portion of the inheritance in fact. And the older son would usually have more authority in the family than the younger son. Even though his, his brother Yaakov was only came out just a minute later Technically, Esau was still the older one. But here, God was telling Rebekah, their mother, that the older son was actually going to serve the younger son. That Esau would end up serving his younger brother, Yaakov. That was unheard of at that time, you see. So now let's look at today's chapter with that in mind. Genesis chapter 36 together and let's see how this prophecy was fulfilled because that's what it's going to tell us today. And we're going to see how Esau's life turned out. I'll read through this pretty quickly. We'll stop just once or twice on our way through it and give a little bit of commentary at certain points. But then we're going to quickly read through this and then talk about the overall meaning of the chapter. So fasten your seatbelt. Let's get started. It says in Genesis 36 verse 1, Now this is the genealogy of Esau. Esav, remember? Esau, who is also called Edom. And Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Helon, the Hittite. Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Besmat, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebaiot. Now, Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau. And Besmat bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Yeush, Ya'alam, and Korah. And these were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And then it says in verse 5, I'm 6, I'm sorry, that Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all of his animals, and all of his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and he went to a country far away from the presence of his brother Yaakov, Jacob. Verse 7, because their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. They had so many animals that they couldn't graze all that animal, the flocks and everything like that. 
even in the land as, as sparsely populated as it was at that time, there was not enough grass to graze those animals. And so Esau left and says, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So it says in verse eight, so Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. And then it tells us Esau is Edom. Well, what does that mean? Well, Esau, remember when he sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew, people around his place started calling him red. They called him Edom. Edom is how you would say his name, that he was also called. Esau became Edom, okay, but Edom is really red in Hebrew, Be'evrit. Edom is red. Now, in modern Hebrew, we say Adom, Adom, with an A instead of an E there. Adom, and that A is always pronounced as an Ah sound when you see it in Hebrew. But it says at the very last part of verse 8, Esau is Edom. Now, you're going to need to know that because it turns out that the place where he's going to, eventually, his descendants are going to occupy that place so much that it's actually going to be called Edom. Okay? And so now you'll know that when you hear the term Edom and the Edomites, that those are the descendants of Esau. That's where he left to get away from Jacob, his brother, and have more room. And he left and all of his descendants inhabited this place, this nation, and he became the founder of that nation, Edom, you see. And so now I want to discuss just these first verses real quickly before we go on through the bulk of this chapter. In the first part, in Genesis 36, verse 1, remember it started by saying, now this is the genealogy of Esau. Well, what that literally means is the genealogy of Esau. It means this, the generations of Esau. Literally, it means these are the generations of Esau. Same thing, same meaning, genealogy, family tree, whatever you want to call it. These are the generations of Esau. And that's actually the word used in the Bible, the generations. In the Bible, though, the word generation means the same as seed. So if you're talking about descendants, and many times God in the Bible would tell someone, your, your seed, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. He was saying your seed is going to be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. In other words, I'm going to plant through you I'm going to plant through your offspring. They're going to be your, your seed is going to be in them, the DNA, and that's going to be your descendants are going to be the harvest that comes from your seed. So this is the seed of Esau is what we're saying in this chapter. These are the generations that came from Esau. That's what that first verse means in chapter 36, verse 1 of the book of Genesis. So we see that if it means seeds, well, you know that in nature, when a seed is planted, it grows into the same type of plant that it came from, right? If I wanted to take an apple tree and I put an apple seed in the ground, I wouldn't expect watermelons to grow up from where I planted that seed, would I? No, I'd expect an apple tree to go up eventually from that point. And so whatever seed is planted, that's what you're going to get. So in this chapter, we see Esau's seed produced other people that were pretty much like him. Materialistic seed yielded materialistic offspring. Ungodly seed yielded ungodly offspring. In other words, many of Esau's descendants turned out just like him. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to turn out just like your parents. Of course, you may look like them. You may even talk like them or walk like them. And have the, maybe you're just as tall as they are or, or not quite as tall. Maybe you have the same color of eyes, maybe similar hair to both your mother and your father, biological mother and father. And, but every child doesn't really have to act like their parents as they go through life. They're not stuck with that. 
uh, sure, you're influenced by your parents when you see their actions as you're growing up, but you don't have to act the same way that they did. Just because they did something bad, for instance, doesn't mean that you'll grow up doing the same bad things and, oh, well, my parents did it and here's the way I turned out too. Can't do anything about that. In Hebrew, we say malasot. <laughs> Ain't malasot. There's nothing you can do about it. It says, what can I do, you know? But anyway, so it says that this is the seed of Esau, the generations of Esau. But you have to understand that even though those people don't have to copy the bad traits of Esau, their ancestor, if that's the environment that, are, that they're around, if they never see any other example of someone living a godly life, they, they might end up like him. And that's what happened. They ended up with a lot of the same values that he had, thinking like he did. They didn't know any other way of life, and that's how they grew up. But if you yourself, if you never see an example of someone living a good life, you might end up thinking that the bad things that you saw from somebody else when you were growing up is just the way everybody lives. But that's not the way it is. You still have a choice in life about how you're going to live your own life. And you, yourself, don't have to do those really bad things in life. And that's great news. God can forgive those sins, even if you did some bad. And He can set you on the right path if you seek Him and ask Him to save you. That's wonderful news. Then you can be the one who breaks the cycle of bad things in your family. And you can start teaching your own children about the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. In fact, you can even influence other lives in the people all around you, even though they're not a part of your family. That's the goodness of God at work. Everyone can be saved simply by asking for forgiveness of sins and believing on God's Mashiach, Messiah, Yeshua, the Son of God. Now, continuing on, we see in verses 4 and 5 that it said, And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, and Besmat bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Yehush, and Ya'alam, and Korah. And one of Esau's wives that is talking about here, Aholibamah, had been a temple prostitute. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, here's how. Here's how we know. Her name literally meant Tent of the High Place. That was a special designation that they called the high places where pagan gods and idols were worshipped and where they were served. There would be a tent close by called the tent of the high place. And the priestess would live there, the women would live there, the priestesses would live there inside those tents. And they were really not priestesses at all, they were prostitutes. And that was part of their religion. You could, you could have these sexual things going on with these priestesses if you came up to, to serve these false gods and idols and to leave your, your money there and all these things. It was terrible, horrible that people would serve pieces of wood and pieces of rock, carve them out, cut a tree down, carve that wood up, make it look like some sort of a a figure or something and then bow down before it and pray to it to answer prayers and do mirac miraculous things in their lives. What kind of logic is that? That wasn't really smart. But these people would come up and in order for the religious people to entice them to come up, they put these tents there and they said, oh, well, these women in this tent in the high place, these are really priests priestesses for you to serve as you're serving the idols, the gods of these people you see. And Aholibama, her name literally meant tent of the high place. These were known to be residents of the tent of the high place. Anyone with that name, and that's where she had come from. And now she was Esau's wife. Well, Esau realized that his marriage to a temple prostitute would not go over very well with his parents. They lived in Canaan. They believed in the one true and living God. And God had spoken to Isaac, his father, right? And certainly God had spoken to Abraham, Isaac's father, Esau's grandfather. 
And now Esau's reasoning, you know, well, my marriage to this temple prostitute is not going to be a, a really good thing with my parents. So we see in chapter 26 earlier in verse 34, we see that Esau changed Aholibamah's name to Judith. Now, I know in English you say Judith. Judith. <laughs> but Be'evrit in Hebrew, we call it Judith. That's how we pronounce Judith. Judith. And it's the same woman. And we know because of her lineage there, we know because of her inclusion in the list of Esau's wives at different places, when she's not included as a holy Bama, she's included as Judith. It's the same woman. Esau just changed her name. He didn't want his parents to know that she had been a temple prostitute. And her name would be a dead giveaway. The tent of the high place, they would know in an instant that she was a temple prostitute. Now, as a temple prostitute, Holy Bama would have been very beautiful, there's no doubt. But Esau was attracted to her, physically, fleshly. In Esau's life, we've already seen that he's a fleshly man. He's a carnal man. Remember, he sold his own birthright for a simple bowl of red stew. We see a man who had once planned on killing his own brother. Remember? That's why Yaakov had to run. Yaakov was no angel at that point in time either, but, uh, you know, Esau overreacted and wanted to kill his brother. We see that Esau was so disconnected from God, from the God of his parents, that he married women from the Canaanites who were worshipers of false gods, worshipers of idols, even temple prostitutes. And now we see that he tries to hide that sin of marrying this temple prostitute by changing her name. So he changes his, her name, the name of the temple prostitute wife, to make it sound more acceptable. He changed it from Aholibama, which meant tent of the high place, to Yudit, or Judith, if you would say in English. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's terrible. How could someone do something like that and lie like that to their parents? But do you ever hide your sin by calling it by some other name? Do you ever spread gossip to other people, but you don't call it gossip? You say, oh, I just have something I want you to pray about. If you came right up to them and said, hey, I got some juicy gossip you should hear. And they go, you know what? Listen, I don't do gossip take it somewhere else. But it, would you come up to them and say, well, listen, could you pray about something? I saw this person the other day and they were doing this. I don't think that was right. And she said this and that other person said that. That's gossip. You can call it what you want. It's not something to pray about. It is gossip. You haven't changed it just by changing its name. Do you change the name of your sexual perversion to simply it's not a sexual perversion. It's an alternative lifestyle. Do you call your lie? Oh, it's not a lie. It's a half-truth. You could fool a lot of people a lot of the time, but God is not fooled any of the time by you. He knows what that sin really is. He knows what it means. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're trying to hide. So instead of trying to hide that sin behind another name, why not simply give it to the Lord and let Him forgive you and heal you and get on with life and be clean, not carry the weight of all that guilt and all these things that you have to try to keep together to make your story match and everything. Let go of the lies. Go with the truth. Let go of the sin. Go with the good. It's actually better for you, and God will bless you in it all as well. It's vital that God heals you of that sin because unforgiven sin always, always ends in eternal death and judgment, separation from God, torture, hell. You don't want that. And God loves you too much to see you bring that upon yourself. He stands ready to forgive you if you call out to Him and you ask Him to come into your life. Now, we see in verse 6 through 8, as we had read just real quickly, and we're really going to speed it up after we get through these two verses. We see that Esau took his wives, his sons, and his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, all of his animals, all of his good, which he had gained in the land of Canaan. And he went to a country away, far away from the presence of his brother Yaakov. 
Now, when Esau went, he named the area after himself. Remember we said that he had been called Edom, and Edom was the same as Adom in Hebrew today. Adom means red. Yarok is green. Kachol is blue. <laughs> you know, and so, so basically we're looking at, at Edom and he's calling himself red because everyone else, all of his friends, all the people around his community started calling him red. And it was kind of like making fun of him, you know, like, hey, red, you changed your birthright for a bowl of, of stew. And I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of people today that if someone says, well, that was stupid what you did, all, there's people today that almost take pride in doing stupid things. It's almost like they're saying, like, you think that was stupid, watch what I'm going to do next. And go, why is that? Why the self-destructive tendency? But Esau was even calling himself Edom, you know, because he named his country where he went to Edom. And Esau moved out of Canaan, and he went over to that area of Edom there, which is actually an area that's south of the Dead Sea and a little bit east of the Dead Sea and extends all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, this is an area that later became known as Edom. And that is the area where Esau and his descendants settled. But it's not going to stay that way for long, as you're going to see as we get on down in these verses. But why did he go there? Because Esau had great riches. And remember, God had been greatly blessing Yaakov when he was back with Laban, working with him, and Padanaram, and God had blessed him, and he had all these flocks, all these people and everything. Well, Esau had so much more than Yaakov, it wasn't even close. And together, they couldn't graze on the same land. Their animals would take too much grass from the pastures, and there wasn't enough green grass to feed all the animals. And even the people couldn't get along well there together. The place was too small for them, even in that large area. That's how wealthy they both were. But Esau was extremely wealthy. Remember when he came to meet his brother, Yaakov, when Yaakov was coming back out of the land of Padanaram and was coming back from Laban, coming back to return to his family and return to Canaan where the Lord had told him to get back to. And Esau came out to meet Yaakov and Yaakov was really worried because he heard that his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him 20 years earlier, his brother Esau was going to come to meet him and he had 400 men with him. He had a small army with him. That's how rich he was. He not only had his own animals, his own farms, ranches, and all these people that were part of his and, and maidservants and manservants and all of these animals and all of this stuff. He even had his own army with him. His riches were just huge. <laughs> and so he wanted to go somewhere to where he could be alone. He could spread out. And he had seen, no doubt, how God was blessing his brother Yaakov. And he didn't want to be around his brother Yaakov. And he didn't want there to be trouble or anything like that. He just wanted to be alone. Remember, he had been raised to be a man of the outdoors. He was a hunter, remember? He was used to traveling around, being in different places. He could go to a place that he'd never seen before, set up shop there, make a place to live, turn it into a farm there. Everything would be okay. That was easy for him to do. And so he moved on out. He moved on out, and now we're going to finish up the chapter by continuing our reading all the way from verse 9 to the end of this chapter in one reading. Are you ready? Tighten that seatbelt. It says in verse 9, And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons. Now pay attention here. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemat, the wife of Esau. Verse 11, And the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam. And Kenaz. Now it says in verse 12, now Tima was the concubine, or basically like a wife, but not quite as official as a wife, just someone that uh, he would use to have babies for him, really. Now Tima was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Ephaz. And these were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. 
These were the sons of Reuel, Nahat, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These were the sons of Basemat, Esau's wives. Wife. And then in verse 14, it said, these were the sons of Aholibamah. Remember, the one who was renamed into Yudit or Judith. These were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion. And she bore to Esau, Yeush, Ya'alam, and Korah. And then it says in verse 15, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. They had chiefs who were the primary, the priority type. They were the heads of the various tribes of, of Esau's descendants. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, was Chief Timan, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kanaz. And Chief Kanaz, it says, uh, Chief Korah, rather it says in verse 16, Chief Katam, and chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. Remember the land of Esau, the land of red, if you will. These were the sons of Ada. <clears throat> now these were the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, chief Nahat, chief Zerah, chief Shema, and chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. And these were the sons of Basemat, Esau's wife. Verse 18 then says, And these were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, Chief Yeush, Chief Ya'alam, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom. There it is. And these were their chiefs. Now it's going to talk about the sons of Seir and how that works into this. Verse 20, these were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. The sons of the Horite who inhabited the land. In other words, he didn't have these children back in the land of Canaan. These were had over in Edom, apparently. So, These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zebion, Ana. Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Himan, and Lotan's sister was Timna. And these were the sons of Shobal, Alvin, not Alvin the chipmunk, Alvin, and Manhalat, uh, sorry, Manalhat, and Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. And then verse 24, these were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Anana. And this was Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys for his father Zibion. Apparently, this was a big thing. When anyone was in the wilderness and they found a spring of water, they became famous because everybody could use that water out there, you see. So this person, Anna, found that water in the wilderness as he was pasturing his father's donkeys, the, the donkeys of Zibion, his father. Then verse 25 continues, These were the children of Anna, Dishon, and Holibamah, the daughter of Anna. And these were the sons of Dishon. Now, Hemdan, Ishban, Ithran, and Sheran. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Za'avan, and Akan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. And verse 29, then, as we go on down the road here, these were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zebion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to the chiefs in the land in Zaire, the land of Zaire. In verse 31, now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. And the name of his city was called, remember I said earlier, some time ago, and through the weeks that we've been going through Genesis, in those days, kings were kings over cities. And each of those cities was kind of like its own country. And so it says, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. 
And when Bela died, Yobab, the son of Zerar of Bozrah, reigned in his place. When Yobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Now I want to pause right there really quickly for verse 33 and 34. You see that name there, Yobab? That's not someone from Texas. That's not Joe Bob. It's not Billy Bob or Jim Bob. That's Joe Bob. And that name, it looks like, could be who the Bible calls Job and the book of Job. Now, you may have heard that the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, if not the oldest. Well, there's reason to believe that this Jobob mentioned here in verse 33 and 34 of chapter 36 in Genesis is Job. I mean, if you just shortened it slightly, it's Job. It's easy to get Jobob out of Job, you see. And he's the son of Bozrah, and he reigned in his place. And when he died, Husham and the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Now, I'll talk to you a little bit about why they think that Jobab might have been Job. Because one of the descendants of Esau is called Eliphaz. And we saw that earlier. We've already covered that name earlier in this chapter. Eliphaz, it turns out in the book of Job, is one of the people that came to Job to comfort him when Job was sick and almost dying and when Job had lost all of his children, all of his family and everything like that and he was sick and covered with all these sores and everything. This person came to console him and comfort him and this person was Eliphaz. That was the name of that person in the book of Job. Well, here we have two names. First of all, Jobab here, which could have been Job. And then we have Eliphaz, which would have been his uncle. So if this was Job, then it just makes sense that his uncle could have been one of the people who came to comfort him because the names match, you see. So that's what scholars think. There's a very good chance that this Job that they're talking about is the Job in the book of Job. If that's the case, it means that Job lived at the same time as Yaakov and Esau, which shows how far back this was, you see. It shows how far back the book of Job was. They might have been contemporaries alive at the same time. And so it seems like that they were somehow related, apparently, through Esau and his lineage. Then verse 34, it says, uh, When Yobab died, Husham in the, of the land of the Temanites, as we read, reigned in his place. In verse 35, And when Husham died, Hadad of the son, uh, the son of Bedad, uh, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avit. Now, you say, Stephen, that says Avith with a T-H on the end. You, know, you remember I told you in Hebrew we don't have that T-H sound like the or those or the. We don't have that. So when you see A-V-I-T-H, you pronounce it as Avit. Avit with a hard T. No T-H. It's not a part of Hebrew. So when Hadad died, it says in verse 36, Samla of Masrikah reigned in his place. Verse 37, And when Samla died, Saul of Rehubot by the river reigned in his place. Verse 38, When Shaul, that's how we say Saul, Be'ivrit in Hebrew, When Shaul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And then verse 39, And when Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city, as a king, the name of his city was Paul. His wife's name was Mehetabel. Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. And then we're going to talk about the last three verses here. And it says, and these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places, by their names. So it's summarizing now, Chief Timnah, Chief Alba, Chief Jetheth, Jetheth and Chief Aholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Penon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timan, Chief Mibzar, and Chief 
Magdiel and chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom, Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And Esau was the father of the Edomites. You could say that another way. Edom was the father of the Edomites because Esau was called Edom, right? Now, we're done. We're done reading that chapter. And I just want to kind of cover some of these things briefly. You say, how can you get any application for our lives from a whole list of names? Well, you see, you're going to see that throughout Esau's life, he was a man who lived after the flesh. He was a very carnal man. He's getting these wives that look good and everything. He doesn't care that they're idol worshipers. He's not a man of God. He's, he's a man that takes care of himself. He's concerned with food more. He's concerned about his birthright. He's concerned about a good-looking woman. He goes and gets one of these beautiful priestesses from the temple of an idol-worshiping temple. You know, and, and all of these things. He's getting to himself all of these riches and treasures, anything his soul wants, anything his flesh wants, anything his eyes can see. If he likes it, he's going to get it. He doesn't think about God at all. He doesn't think about what's right, what's wrong. He just wants what he wants, and he gets what he wants. To him, these are just treasures that he's going he's to acquire and get to himself and, and eat, feed his soul, feed his flesh whatever it wants. It's always screaming out for more and more things. And he's just feeding his flesh every time we see him. But these are only temporary treasures. And temporary treasures can turn into terrible tragedies. They lure you in with a false sense of promise and happiness and security. And then when you take the bait, the trap closes on you. And that fleshly thing that looked so tempting before now becomes an empty lie. A deceitful, false advertisement that locks you into a present of your own making. Now, just like Esau, that's the way we are. He was a man who had so much riches that he had to take it all to another country. Maybe you don't have that many riches, but you're always looking for more. That's the way Esau was. That's what I'm saying here. He didn't have enough room for all of his riches. He was powerful too. He was famous. You're probably not powerful. I'm not powerful. I'm not famous. Uh, you know, but Esau would get anything that his eye desired. Anything that he wanted. He spent his life collecting all of these temporary treasures. Anything that the world had to offer him, he could get. And some of us live that way as well. You may not have the options that Esau had, but the things that you set your eyes on, the things that you set your sights on, the things that you put on your heart all the time are the things that the world is offering. And are you living only to get those things? Is that what your life is all about? Getting, seeing the bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Come on, is that what your life is like? Just getting stuff. Stuff, that's not life. Stuff is stuff. Stuff grows old, you have to replace it. Stuff gets stolen, then you have to get some more. And you don't like your stuff anymore, so you go down to Stuff Mart and you get some more stuff. You'll not be happy with stuff. You'll not be happy with just more money. You'll not be happy with anything material and physical. You were created in the image of God, and inside you have a God-shaped hole in your life that only God can fill. And you will not be completely and totally at peace and happy in life until God is dwelling in your life. Stuff is never a substitute for God. No sooner have you gotten the stuff, you're looking at other stuff and thinking maybe that'll make you happy finally. So you get that, that doesn't work out. You go through life being deceived by stuff and riches the whole life long. Every day of your life chasing after 
things that you think will make you happy. That's the way Esau was. He could get anything he wanted, though. He didn't have the limitations that you and I have. Anything as I desired, he would get it. He spent his life collecting, sadly, only temporary treasures. He lived outside the promised land. Oh, there's a message in that. When you're not living for God, when God is not there with you, you're living outside the promises of God, outside the protection, the keeping of God, the blessing of God. You'll not be happy until you return to your Heavenly Father. That's what I'm saying. Now, if you go to where Edom is today, Edom was today, you'll see that there is absolutely nothing there. That once impregnable city of Petra that is in Edom, which the Edomites were so proud of, they said that no army could get past that city, and that was their capital. That's where they lived. The Edomites had Petra, like you saw in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And today, Petra is uninhabited. It's a ghost town. Edom, nobody lives there. The Edomites, they're dead. They're gone. Whatever is done through the flesh will ultimately be as empty as Edom. This is the fate of all who ignore the kingdom of God and choose instead the temporary treasures of the world. If you look back at history from where we are today, you'll see that Esau's people, Edom, no longer exist. They stopped existing, as near as archaeologists can tell, around 667 B.C. After the prophecy in Obadiah in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, talked about how they would cease to exist, and God said that they would cease to exist. Then in 667 B.C., no one can find them anymore. The last references we have on archaeological um, uh, artifacts unambiguous references to Edom were up to 667. After that, they couldn't find anything more that even mentioned Edom. And there's no more evidence at all past that point in time that they even existed after that. What am we saying? We're saying that Esau is rich and powerful as he was. A man who can get anything he wants, do anything he wants, go anywhere he wants buy anything he wants, his people no longer exist. His impact on the world did not last. He was only concerned with the things of this life, the lust of the eyes, the gratifying of his flesh, the wealth of the world, all just temporary things. All of his life focused on trying to acquire, really, illusions things that he thought would make them happy, temporary treasures. And in the end, his kingdom, just like his own life, ended up empty in spiritual poverty. When he passed away, he took nothing that he had acquired with him. As time marched on, everything that Esau got for himself, everything that he built up, all of his material possessions, all of his power, all of his fame, all of the people, even his very nation that was named after him, all of it decayed away and was gone, disintegrated in time, and he's left with nothing. He had spent his entire life laying up temporary treasures, and he had no lasting treasure in heaven. His life had come and gone, and now there was nothing to show for it. No lasting impact, no lasting blessing. Time had swallowed up all that he had accumulated, and when his eternity arrived, he had nothing to show for his time on earth. He had lived his life only for temporary treasures. What are you living life for today? What are your treasures? You know, in the New Testament, Barbara Chadashah, Basifra Matai, in the book of Matthew in the New Testament, it says in chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. 
Very wise words, of course, from the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus Himself. Are you living your life thinking about eternity? You were created for the for God and you were created in the image of God to be his child. That means that you have an eternal spirit. The real you, the thinking, feeling you, the real you, the one that is speaking from your lips, the one who is thinking of the words to say, the one who feels pain, the one who feels love, the one who is you, the real you is inside. You're a spirit. Your body is just a vehicle to get around in while you're on this earth. Are you living your life with your eyes on eternity? Or are you deceiving yourself and cheating yourself out of the real rewards by living just for temporary treasures? You can turn it all around today. Why don't you give your life to the Lord today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. And He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from the darkness you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person, all clean, total new start, wiping all those sins away. And He'll guide you from now on. He'll throw all those past failures away too. And you'll be made completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. And that's guaranteed by God Himself. I want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and receive God's peace, this peace that we're talking about, into your own life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can repeat it after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Finally, Lord, I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, God heard you, and He's already even now started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. And over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God is making in your life. That seed's going to grow, and you're going to see it. Let's give it some time. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him every day in His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.